Okay, Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. Adam, whenever you're ready. All right. Um, yes, sir. Verse 1 there, Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God, Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There you go. That's, oh, that's it. it. That's it. Okay. Yeah, you're good. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, you're, you're, take that back to uh, Cameron, if you will. Okay. Um, I'm going to pray for us once more. And if you're new to Redstone, um, this is a, pray, a prayer that the Lord would just take his word and use it and then make everything else just fall to the side. So let's pray. Uh, Father, as we dig into um, this passage, oh God, I pray that as people look at the words and then they consider the words, Lord, that you would uh, take your word and you would make it come alive in our hearts. But every Sunday I speak lots of words and I um, just pray, oh God, that the words that are not from you, that they would just fall to the side and they would be quickly forgotten and only that which is eternal would remain. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, like I said a moment ago, we are in the book of Ephesians. So last week we did a quick overview and we talked about how this book is what they called a circular letter, which means that it was meant to be brought into the church and it was supposed to be read from the very first verse all the way to the very last verse openly and then they were going to take this book or this, this letter, and then we're going to take it to the next church, okay? So last week we did that. If you weren't here, we actually did an overview, and then we had men in the church stand up, and each one of them took um, a chapter, one through six. I also threw out the challenge uh, last week that as we're going through this book, and we're going to be in it, how long? All year. We're going to take a break in the summer because we're going to do a different series and we're going to come back, but we're going to be in Ephesians all year. And my son last week said, how in the world are you going to be preaching through Ephesians all year? And I'm like, really? We could do it in two years, Caleb. You know, so there's a lot here. So yeah, we're going to go through it, but we're asking everybody to consider reading chapter one on Monday, chapter two on Tuesday, all the way to Saturday, finish up chapter six, and then come in here. What would it look like if the Word of God was just saturated and Ephesians was just you know, oozing out of us um, on a regular basis? So that's what we encourage you to do. So last week, I, I showed you these three words. There was position, practice, and protection. So when you look at Ephesians, okay, these are the areas that you're going to see. The first part, and it's, it's so important. I cannot stress this enough. If you jump into practice and if you jump into protection without understanding position, you're going to miss it. Okay, so we're going to spend a lot of time on what is our position in Christ. We're going to sink our teeth into it a little bit today and much uh, more so the next two weeks, okay? And then after you stand, understand peripherally from a heavenly standpoint how God sees us, then walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. How do you go about living that out? And then lastly, the enemy hates what we're doing. But you know what? We can be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. He gives us the ability to uh, fight against the enemy, so we're going to talk about how to protect ourselves. And I gave you this one, it's just a simple, there's all kinds of great book recommendations, but this one's like 60, 70 pages, Watchman Knee, it's sit, walk, stand, sit, uh, sit is the same thing as position, walk is the same thing as practice, and then stand is the same thing as protection. So it just kind of gives you this overview, and it's really, really good. Somebody ordered it a couple days ago, I think it was Adam, wasn't it? What, $4 or something? Yeah, on Amazon, so I, I encourage you to, to read that. Okay, let's go back and look at the passage again. And there's these four words that we're going to jump into. So today is more of an introduction 
and semantics. Semantics means the meanings of words, okay? So you're going to see these words all throughout Ephesians, so I figure it's important that we know what they mean. So as a way of introduction, we're going to do a broad overview, and we're going to talk about what is a saint, what is grace, what is peace, and why is it father? You know, why do we say father in here? So those are the four that we're going to jump um, into. And then next week, we're going to look at this, this passage all the way through 14, and we're going to see that God has had a plan all along, kind of like when we did um, Advent this year, uh, Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God had a plan. Okay, and then the next week, we're really going to look at every spiritual blessing. So I am really stoked about the next two weeks, but right now I need to remain present on today's passage. Okay, so looking at saint, I'm going to show you this. Eight times in this one small book, the word saint is used. Let me just read these. Um, I won't give you the references. I'll just read them. To the saints who are in Ephesus, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? To me, though, I am the least, very least of all of the saints. May I have strength to comprehend with all the saints, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But sexual immorality, remember three weeks ago, big topic, or two weeks ago, um, you know, so let's stay in the light on that one. So just a quick plug, like if you're still out there struggling, please come to us. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And then at the very end in chapter 6, he says, and make supplication for all of the saints. Okay, so this word is used a lot. So we ought to at least know what it means. And I asked one of my friends a couple of days ago, she was a daughter, and I just said, what does saint mean? And she was like, I'm not sure. You know, so we had a great discussion on this topic. Okay, so saint actually means holy ones. Okay, it's most often used in the New Testament to describe a Christian. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it actually refers to God's holy nation. And even in the book of Judges, the same word that's used for saint is used to talk about angels. Okay, but it means holy ones. But oftentimes, bless you, Sam Adams, oftentimes when we hear the word saint, what do you think of? So give me a response. If you hear saint, what do you think of? Somebody spit it back to me. Catholic traditions. Okay, what else? Really old Christian. Older than me, right? Like, you're right. Okay, anything else? Okay, saint. So can you imagine, um, oh, I don't know, who can I pick on? Oh, it's Adam Day. Can you imagine like St. Adam McCain? No, it just doesn't fit, does it? Right? So usually within especially the Catholic Church, and this was not introduced until the 4th century, but in the 4th century it was um, a means of Christian nobility or your piety or your good works. You could attain to a certain part of Christendom where people would say, yeah, you made it, and it's almost like you were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame or whatever Hall of Fame, okay? So it's your super-Christians were your saints. But when you go through and you look at a Scripture, not just Ephesians, but all throughout Scripture, sometimes in the same context that Paul or Peter or whomever might be using the word saint, there might be a, 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 a sinful struggle that's there as well. Okay, so the saint 
definition must not necessarily mean without sin. That identity must be coming from somewhere else, and it is. Okay, And it's the very foundation of this, the, the first part of this marvelous book as we look at from the viewpoint of God that we're going to see what God calls a saint. So I'm going to read a couple of passages to you. You might want to jot these down. I did not put them up on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians 6.11. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6.11. Consider these words. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. There's a past tense declaration of our standing that he's given to us. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and it says, Because of him, and in the, the him here, if you look back, it's saying, Because of God, you are now in Christ Jesus, and in Christ Jesus, he has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.24 for our sake he made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Last night I was letting the dog out, Kenzie, our golden retriever, and there's like this little puddle of mud right outside the door and there's a sidewalk and then there's the mud and then there's the, you know, the grass. And she always finds a way just to put her big paw right in that mud. Right, and then it's like oh, Kenzie. So you got to you know wipe her foot and everything else. And I looked out there this morning, and it was gone. It was completely gone because you know what was on top of it? Snow, white as snow. And I thought about that on my way here this morning. I'm like, that is what this verse is talking about, right? We're the dirt. We're the mud. You know, we're the the nasty thing that just touches everything else, and we you know we trample our dirt everywhere that we go. And God, through Christ, puts the snow on top of us. And when He looks down upon us, He doesn't see the dirt anymore. He sees the whiteness of the snow. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And what He's saying here is, and if that has happened to you, if you have given your faith to Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel, you can't um, attain to enough you know, good works or piety or whatever ever to uh, attain to sainthood. It's something that is a declared by God to you. So that takes us to our first definition. I think that this one may be in your worship guide with your notes if you are filling in blanks. A saint is a believer of the gospel and a follower of Jesus who, because of his or her faith, has been set apart and declared holy by God. As the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to him or to her. In short, uh, we aren't and will never be perfectly, to go to the definition, holy ones on this earth. But God sees us as holy ones because of our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we're under this title of our position in Christ. So that word saint means something. So a lot of people would say, well, there's believers and then there's like really, really, really good believers, and then there's saints, and then there's the apostles, and then there's Jesus. And God looks at it and says, you're either for me or you're against me. In fact, in Revelation it says, and if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Okay? I didn't say that. That's what you know, the, the book of Revelation said. So this is binary, meaning it's either A or B. 
it's black or it's white. I had an elementary principal at Providence Academy that used to work for me, and he had this, I don't think I put it up there, but he had this saying that you're either um, a beanie or a weenie, but there's no in-betweeny. That was the way he said it, yeah. So really, I know that's weird, but you're, you're either a saint or you're an ain't, but there's no in-between. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel because of what He has done, not because of what you do, He has declared you to be holy. This is so important, people. And it's because of that position of what He has done that we can then walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I don't want to get you know going too far on this, but He gives us His Holy Spirit to live within us, and it's a holy thing for the Holy One to live within us and to empower us to be able to do the right things. You know, to uphold the law, to love well. We can't do those things on our own. He lives within us. We will still struggle. Read Romans 7. You know, I know what I should do, but I don't do it. You know, and I know what I shouldn't do, but I end up doing it anyway. Who shall rescue me from this body of sin and death? And he says, but thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we are not condemned because of our faith in Christ. Positionally, we are saints. You must believe that and receive that and hold on to that. Otherwise, you're really going to struggle with your practice. Because when you trip up, it's going to be on your shoulders. And you're going to feel like that you let the Lord down and you let all of humanity down. And again, you're going to go run and hide. And you're going to feel guilty. You're going to pay penance. And then you're going to come back. It's that whole circular thing that we talked about with sexual temptation. Okay, the next part of the, the passage, Ephesians 1-2 says... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As He's the one who, whose work is sufficient to take sinners and declare them to be saints, that is a work of His grace. So let's look at those two definitions. Okay, grace and peace. It's important that we understand them because all of Ephesians is laced with grace and with peace. You know, so Paul begins with them in verse number two and he ends um, with grace and peace. Remember last week at the very end of chapter 6, and I said really all of Ephesians is a bookend. You know, you grace and peace at the beginning, and you've got grace and peace uh, mixed with love at the end. Okay, So grace and peace really could be its own bookend in, in this passage uh, for us, or in this book for us. So what exactly is grace? It's actually a difficult word to define. So if I ask you what grace means, a lot of you would say it means unmerited favor. And that is true. It is unmerited favor. Okay? Um, it's favor for that that you do not deserve. And that is true. Um, it is being undeserving. Well, one of my former pastors called it, grace is the channel through which all God's blessings flow to us. I love that. Grace is the channel through which all God's blessings flow to us because we don't deserve anything. And if the Lord does give us anything like our next breath, that is grace. Okay? God's value on us is not conditional upon all of our works. It is conditional upon our faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says it this way, but God shows His love for us while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dirty and muddy and nasty, He covered us white as snow. It makes no sense that He would do that. We did not have to work for that. Our work, Scripture says, is to believe in Christ. And if we believe in Christ, 
that is, this grace is then imputed to us and he declares us to be saints. So here's a great uh, definition. You see it right here. So by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, is a gift of God, not a result of works. No one can boast. So definition number two, grace is the channel in which God has chosen to pursue us and bless us undeservedly. And that undeservedly is a key word. Do you see that? We don't deserve it. So that, that's what grace is. Well, how, what about peace? Uh, Spencer Till, I'm going to quote Spencer, our brother at Johnson City Redstone. He says, is it the stoppage of war? Um, there's this um, Society of International Law in London that states that during the past 4,000 years, there have been only 268 years of peace in spite of all of the peace treaties that we've had in our, in our world. That's crazy. In the past three centuries, there have been 286 wars in Europe alone. That's not even including the whole world. You know, so is peace a time of rest and quiet? Yes, it is. But in a biblical setting, it's so much more. The actual root meaning is union after separation or bringing together or reconciliation after a conflict or after a dispute that peace is brought in. Sometimes that comes you know, from words, and sometimes that comes from a hug, and sometimes that comes from a handshake, but now we are at peace with one another. There was discord, and now there is union, and that union is what we would call peace. But why do we need to be reminded um, of our position, and how does it you know, bring grace and peace into us? Well, it's because man is at enmity with God. We are sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Not only are we sinners, we're haters of God. We despise His law because we fight for ourselves and we want to be on the throne of our own lives. Everything by nature in us is opposed to God. That's the truth of mankind. You may not like to hear that because good, you know, there's good in all of us. We can do good things, but our motivation for doing so is either for our own glory or it's for the glory of God unregenerate man does not desire to bring glory to God, but unregenerate man can walk old people across the street and take you know, food to you know, those in the shelters and do amazing good things, but not so that they can bring glory to God. So that's the difference that's there. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So we are at enmity with God, and there's no Christianity without Jesus Christ. There's no blessing from God the Father apart from Jesus Christ, and there's no true peace without Jesus Christ. We can never be at peace with God without Jesus Christ. By grace, we were given Jesus, and He is the one who reconciles us to God when we were at war with Him. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, striving to remain seated on the throne of our own lives, He intervenes, He saves us from our sin, He saves us from ourself, and in doing so, we no longer have to fear this penalty of, you know, of death for all the things that we've done wrong because He has reconciled us and He has declared us to be at peace with God. Therefore, Romans 5.1, put it in your heart, quote it often, since we have been justified by faith, we have is a present tense word. Christian that's sitting here this morning or that's watching us online, someone who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. You are His saint. I don't feel like a saint, and I don't feel like I'm at peace with God, but you are. Positionally, you are. Well, how about when I sin? He's faithful to forgive you of your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. But it doesn't take away the fact that you're still His child and you're still at peace with Him. Amen and amen. We can stop the service right now and sit in and rest in and bring glory to God the fact that we are at peace with Him. And you'll see this all throughout this first chapter Three or four times, I think it's three times, Paul just suddenly says, and to the praise of His glorious grace, everything that he's saying in Romans or in Ephesians 1 is a declaration of how God sees us positionally. And if you begin to understand a little bit of that, you can't help but to praise Him. So this morning, just to understand that because of the grace of Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God and you are a saint. I love that. I love that. So today is semantics, defining our terms, making sure that we understand um, these, these words. Okay, the last one that we're going to look at today, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Father is actually used twice in this passage. I've had a couple of people, various places, you know, it might be Redstone, it might be even out of Redstone, I can't remember all the details, but people have asked me in this age of uh, gender issues within our culture, you know, just struggles with, you know, who is God? You know, how about God the Holy Spirit? Is God the Holy Spirit, you know, male or female? And these, these are just really, really good questions. And I remember saying like the same months ago, I'm like, one of these days, we ought to talk about this. And I've been kind of looking for an opportunity. So when I looked at verses 1 through 3, I'm like, well, there's Father. It's in there twice. Let's at least talk about it. I was going to do a whole sermon on it, and there was just a check from the Holy Spirit that I just shouldn't. So for whatever reason, I'm not. So instead, we did saint, and we did grace, and we did peace. But I still want to look at it. I still want to talk about it, but I'm not going to be able to cover this topic extensively. So if you're like, I still have questions here, or I've got thoughts or whatever, Sam, just come see me and we'll go have coffee, right? So some of these conversations turn into like a longer um, uh, coffee conversation. So we see Paul mention God as Father twice within the first three verses. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, first off, it's a big deal that we could call God our Father, but in an age where gender identity is such a polarizing topic, evoking emotions like all over the spectrum, and the world where the world has chosen to ignore, and even sometimes the church has chosen to ignore, just these clear evidences that come from God's intentionality within His creation of two specific genders, a male and a female, we should at least step into it and talk about it we should ask the question, why do we call him father instead of mother? Does that even matter? Can we do either one? Is he okay with, with either one? And I said, yeah, let's, let's just discuss it. Let's just talk about it. So I have read more articles on this topic over the past couple of weeks than I can even just declare to you. 
I have jumped into Greek and Hebrew, which I'm not real good at, to find out what exactly was this word, probably more so than I had intended. And what ended up happening was I began to see clearly from Genesis all the way to Revelation the patterns that were here, and I read lots of articles on people that disagreed with my conclusions, and I began to ask, well, why? Why did they disagree? What was it that they saw that I didn't see? And that's what will unfold in the next few moments. Okay, this is an overview, so it's going to be quick. So in Genesis, we see that God was made in His own image, right? It's a small technicality, but it's big. God said, I'm going to make man, and the best as I can, I want this man to represent who I am as creator God, so I'm going to make him in my image, and he made man. And then for man, he made woman. And within man and within woman, as we'll see, are just the greatest characteristics that we can see of who God is. Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, um, Kiros, which I probably am not pronouncing correctly, and there's several others. All of these words for God that you see all the way throughout Scripture, every single one of them are masculine in nature. Right? I don't have any agenda here other than let's just look at the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed for us, uh, Peter says that all of the Scripture, as the prophets were writing, they, were, they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So at the end of the day, remember John 17, 17? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We have to know what the truth of the Word of God is. And that's all we're trying to do this morning. Jesus was born male or female. He was born male, right? And Hebrews says that He is the exact, God's words, not mine, the exact imprint of God's nature the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus says, I'm going away, but I will come back to you. If Jesus is male and he's coming back to us, is he coming back as male or female? I mean, just logic, right? You would say, well, it's male. But not only that, go look at every time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned, right? When there's a word in front of me, like a he or a she, it's always the word that is he. We just have to pay attention uh, to that. And they asked him, like, Jesus, how should we pray? And he says, okay, pray our Father, you know, who art in heaven, quoting a little King James Version. So people might ask, but aren't there times in the Bible that the Bible clearly uses feminine or motherly language to describe God? Yes, yes and yes. And that was the part that I noticed was coming out of the other articles. And there, there's a lot of them. And I'm going to read a couple of them to you. This is from Isaiah 49, 14. God will not forget Israel just as a woman will not forget her nursing child. So when you look at that, you see like this, this motherly part of God who loves his nursing children. Okay, uh, Various times we're told that we can take refuge under the Lord's wings and that we are kept as the apple of you know, his eye, but that sounds very feminine, motherly. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Uh, Psalm 123 says, we look to him for mercy in the same way, in the same way that a maidservant looks to the eyes of her mistress. I mean, you see that. So you look at that and you say, well, here's like mother, mother God right here. Hosea 13.8 says, God will retaliate like a bear robbed of her cubs. Like a bear robbed of her cubs. Matthew and Luke. Jesus wails for Jerusalem and says he longed to gather his children even as a hen 
gathers her chickens under her wings. So what happens here is, if we don't hermeneutics, you know what hermeneutics is just this Christian word that we use, it's like the science of interpreting Scripture, where you look at words and you look at definitions and you look at, at consistency, you look at the author, you look at the setting, and you start that in Genesis or Genesis and you go all the way to you know, Revelation. When you do all of that, you look for these patterns that are there, but what you don't do is pull out an anomaly, an exception here or an exception there, and say, see, here's my doctrine because this word is used in these places. And that's what I'm trying to show you. Just as shepherd, we have to be real careful with how we read and interpret the word of God, especially in the days that we're living right now. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's what we're trying to do. So when you look at hermeneutics, you would see that there's similes and metaphors all throughout Scripture. God is also uh, likened to be a shepherd, to be bread, to be a rock, to be a lion, to be the sun, to be a shield, and all kinds of descriptive language. So when you see he's like, or it's as a hen, right? Those are, you know, similes, I think, is like and as. Um, forget grammar, but you know what I'm saying. You know, there's this grammar and these metaphors that describe God's characters and liken to something else. But John 4.24 says, God is actually spirit. He's not like us in the way that we think that he is. So even the idea of a man or a father from our tainted worldly lenses, it'll never do justice to who God really is. But he's clearly chosen that form to make himself known to us as a masculine, strong leader. Yet, and hear me on this one, because this is where people are like, yeah, right? But also with the care and comfort and tenderness and love of a mother. God represents the very best, the very best father and the very best mother, and it is from this very nature that both man and woman, male and female, are made. But he says, but if you're going to call me something, or my son something, or the Holy Spirit, you know, it is father, it is son, and it is he. So I wonder, like when I look at this, and I read these articles, and I watch these debates, why is there such a struggle? It could be that many of us, not me, Dad, but have had terrible, you know, earthly fathers. And we, we really kind of you know, pull back when we see Father because that doesn't bring good images to me of who God is. It could be, you know, some of that. Or just that the love of my mother re better represents the love that I see in God. Yes, yes and yes. Hang on to that. Believe that. It is so true, right? We're made in His image. So if you've got a, you know, a, a loving mother just, just full of grace and mercy, yes, she got that from God, and that is, that is um, indicative of who He is. In fact, Romans 13 says that God, or 1 Corinthians 13 says that God Himself is love. And other people may have simply got pulled into this intentional and this biased rhetoric that exists in our world today that we're just all the same and we need to fight for whatever gender that we desire. And if you're not comfortable with your God-given gender, just change it. And if you don't like the fact that God is called Father, then change it, or Son, or Holy Spirit. You, you can just change it. But at the end of the day, as with any doctrine, we have to go to the Word of God. Not quickly, not haphazardly, but carefully 
and we have to discern what the Word is saying, and then we can come to some conclusions. But again, if you want to discuss it further, that'd be a good 90-minute coffee. I actually think the coffee company should pay us for advertising because we mention the coffee company. Don't you think, Frankie? Because we mention it every single week. So Sam Adams, our, our other elder Sam Adams, I want to quote you, Sam. He puts it this way. He says, God says, where did it go? God says, uh, let us make man in our image. And man says, let's make God in our image. It's a little bit of an arrogant and audacious thing to do to try to recreate God in our image and an image that we're more comfortable with. But that's what we do. We just we don't mean to, but that's what we do. You know, side note, if you're a man, rejoice in that. Honor God with that. And if you're a woman, rejoice in that. And I think that the struggle here sometimes becomes that we get lost in, in the difference between order and equality. So let me just briefly hit that. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14 says that God is not a God of disorder. There is order in all things. You can see it at the beginning of Genesis as he created um, each day and everything that unfolded in each day. This is why children are told to submit to their parents. This is why uh, the man is the head of the household. This is why um, God called priests or established governments or why we have elders in the church. There are many examples like this throughout Scripture of where God presents order, but that doesn't mean that like sainthood, that one is better than the other is better than the other. Consider these words from Galatians 3.28. Really, really good passage. As though there are any really bad passages. So, whatever. Um, great passage. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. You see that? That's the position. That's not the order, right? That's, that, that, this is different. You know, this is, this is um, the equality with who we are in Christ. This is our position in Christ. That doesn't mean, and therefore, you don't need parents anymore, and you don't need bosses anymore, and you don't need elders in the church. No, these things are put there for order. But at the end of the day, when Christ looks upon all of us, he doesn't see one of us being superior to the other. And God forbid that there would be anybody at Redstone Elizabeth and that would think that because of the color of our skin that somehow we would be superior to anyone else. That is a lie from the pit of hell as well. There is order and there is equality. And we need to embrace both of them. And this takes us back to our passage and then we close. We do have a father. And because of his love for us, in His grace, He has given us His Son. And this Jesus, God the Son, chose to seek and save that which was lost and to lay down His life for us. And if we believe this good news, if we believe this gospel, we too will be children of the Father. And we will be, present tense, at peace with Him. And if we do understand these truths, we will say what Paul says in his next verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the praise of His glorious grace. And we'll jump into those blessings in a few weeks. Saint, grace, peace, and Father. 
Those are four important words for us to understand as we embark upon our journey through Ephesians. So as we close, let's go to the Father and thank Him for His grace that enables us to be at peace with Him and for Him to be able to call us His saints. I want to pray, as I did last week, the prayer that's in Ephesians 1 for you guys. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I do not cease to give thanks for the people that you have assembled here at Redstone Church. As I remember them in my prayers, I pray that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us as a church the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in our knowledge of Christ. As the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in, um, in us as, as your saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ Jesus when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Father, use these words and truths from this small book to truly change us, to grow us, encourage us, remind us, and may our response be that of thankfulness, gospel boldness, and as we're getting ready to step into in a moment, that of worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.